Join me in prayer, if you would, then, and we'll get started. Right on time, yay. Lord God, we give you thanks and praise for this beautiful day. Thank you for the sunshine. Thank you for the sunshine in the hearts of these women that just love you, love your word, love fellowshipping with other like-minded believers. May today we hear from you in a new and special way. May you touch our hearts in a way that burns us to have this love for you we've never had before. We pray that you would use your servant Catherine to just speak your words through her today. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's lesson, if you want to open up your Bibles, is Exodus chapter 4. I am going to read the passage, and uh, when I do, you'll understand why the title for this lesson is Moses Beats Around the Bush. <laughs> because he really does. <laughs> All right, starting at Exodus 4, verse 1. And Moses answered, now he's in a continual conversation with the Lord of the bush, okay? He answered the Lord and said, but, now that's something you do not ever say to the Lord. <laughs> but, you don't start a sentence with him with but. <laughs> But behold, they, and he's speaking of the elders of Israel, will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice, for they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. I want you to look back at chapter 3, verse 18. What had the Lord told him about the Israelites? And they shall hearken unto thy voice. And then he comes along and says, But they won't. That's not good, is it? No. Verse 2, And the Lord said unto him, what is that in thine hand? And he said, a rod. And he, the Lord said, cast it on the ground. And he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses did what I would have done. He fled from before it. And verse 4, and the Lord said unto Moses, put forth thine hand and take it by the tail. And he caught it, and he put forth his hand. He obeyed here. I don't think I would have. And caught it. And it became a rod in his hand, became the staff again. That they may, and this is uh, the Lord telling him, yeah, I'm giving you this miracle, that they may believe that the Lord God of, your, of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, God of Jacob, hath appeared unto thee. And the Lord said, furthermore unto him, put now thine hand into thy bosom. And he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous as snow. And he, the Lord, said, Put thine hand into thy bosom again. And he put his hand in his bosom again and plucked it out of his bosom. And behold, it was turned again as his other flesh. It was all cleansed. Verse 8, And it shall come to pass, if, this is the Lord talking, if they will not believe thee, neither hearken to the voice of the first sign, the rod to serpent sign, that they will believe the voice of the latter sign, the leprosy miracle. And it shall come to pass, if they will not believe also these two signs, neither hearken unto thy voice, that thou shalt take of the water of the river. This is when you're in Egypt, Moses. Take of the Nile River, take some water, and pour it upon the dry land. And the water which thou takest out of the river shall become blood upon the dry land. So he just gave him three signs. Right? Three signs. <laughs> And Moses said unto the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of slow tongue. And the Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth? 
Or who maketh the dumb or deaf or the seeing or the blind? Have not I the Lord? You know, stop trying to give me excuses, Moses. Who do you think made your mouth? And so verse 12, he says, now, therefore, go. You know, be quiet and just go. (laughs) And I will be with thy mouth and teach thee what thou shalt say. And this is really pathetic. Verse 13, and he, Moses, said, O my Lord, send, I pray thee, by the hand of him whom thou wilt send. You know what that means? Please send somebody else. Mm. You're going to learn things today about Moses that you really wish you didn't know. (laughs) Verse 14, and the anger. You know, the Lord is long-suffering, but he gets to a point where I think the, the burning bush went, you know, kind of flamed up. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite thy brother? Remember, they're both from the tribe of Levi. I know that he can speak well, and also, behold, he cometh forth to meet thee. He's already on his way. Did you know that? Somehow the Lord has spoken to Aaron, and he has already left Egypt, and he is on his way to meet his brother Moses. Uh, he cometh forth to meet thee, and when he seeth thee, he will be glad in his heart. And thou shalt speak unto him and put words in his mouth, and I will be with thy mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you what ye shall do. So Moses is getting a co-laborer in the deliverance work, his brother. And he shall be thy spokesman unto the people, and he shall be even he shall be to thee instead of a mouth. Aaron's going to be Moses' mouth. (laughs) And thou shall be to him instead of God. And thou shalt take this rod in thine hand, wherewith thou shalt do signs. And Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said unto him, Let me go, I pray thee, and return unto my brethren, which are in Egypt, and see whether they be yet alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. That's a lot nicer than when Jacob asked his father-in-law if he could go back home after 20 years. Did Laban want him to go? No. (laughs) Verse 19, And the Lord said unto Moses in Midian, Now this is some other information that the Lord had spoken to Moses while still at the burning bush. We get some extra information here. He had said unto him, Go, return unto Egypt, and all the men are dead which sought thy life. You know, it's been 40 years, and so all those guys who wanted to kill you, like the Pharaoh, they're all gone. So, it says, Moses took his wife and his sons and set them upon an ass, and he returned to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. Who did that staff really belong to? Was it Moses's? No, it was the rod of God. That was another name I thought for this lesson, the rod of God, but I went with Moses beats around the bush. Verse 21, the Lord said unto Moses, when thou goest to return into Egypt, See that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand. But I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. Now, this is the second time he told him that. Remember back in 319, he said, I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. So he knew, Moses knew in advance that the Pharaoh would say, no, you can't go. Verse 22, and thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord. Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, let my son go. Moses is talking for God to Pharaoh, but actually Moses is not talking. Aaron is talking to Pharaoh for Moses, for God. You get it? God, 
Moses, Aaron, Pharaoh. That's the order, which is so silly, just because Moses said, I can't do it. All right, so he says, uh, you know, let, let my son go that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. And isn't that what he had to do? Verse 24, and it came to pass by the way in the end. Okay, Moses and his wife and children are on the way. His two sons, they're on the way. They stopped not really at an inn. They didn't have inns in the middle of the desert, but they just stopped somewhere for the night. And this is one of the weirdest passages in all the word of God. Very, very strange. Probably most pastors would skip over it, and I probably would too <laughs> if I didn't have it in front of me. And it made me so curious. I spent a whole day studying it. But here's what happened. They're on their way to Egypt, and it says the Lord met him. Met who? Moses. And sought to kill him? What? He just commissioned him to, you know, to deliver Israel from Egypt, from their bondage of slavery. And now the Lord met him in order to kill him? Sought to kill him? Is that not a little strange? Does that bring up a lot of questions in your mind? Yeah. Well, it gets weirder. Then Zipporah, who's she? His wife, took a sharp stone, a stone, a sharp stone, and cut off the foreskin of her son <laughs> and cast it at his feet. That's Moses' feet. And said, surely a bloody husband art thou to me. So he let him go. Who's he? The Lord let Moses go. Then she, Zipporah, said, A bloody husband thou art because of the circumcision. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> and the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And he went and met him in the mount of God. He, Aaron met Moses at the foot of Mount Sinai, where he had met the Lord in the burning bush. Did you know that? The two brothers, after 40 years, meet. And it says, and he kissed him. That was an emotional reunion between the two brothers. Do you know how old Aaron was? I found out I went further ahead in the book. Aaron was three years older than Moses. So Aaron was 83 at this time, and Moses was 80. Verse 28, Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron went gathered and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. They're back in Egypt now. They get all the elders together of all the tribes. And who spoke? And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken unto Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. Who did the signs? Aaron. You see, Moses missed out on those blessings, didn't he? And the people believed. Didn't the Lord say they would? Well, they did, and the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked upon their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. That's good. The chapter ends on a good note, doesn't it? They worshipped the Lord. Well, in our last lesson two weeks ago, we looked at Moses' burning bush encounter with the great I am that I am, and that's, of course, where he received his commission to return to Egypt and reassure Israel's leaders that God had indeed remembered his covenant promises. He had heard their cries, and he had himself come down to deliver them from their bondage and bring them into a land flowing with what? Milk and honey. In advance, he had been told that the elders 
would not only believe him, but that they would accompany him to the palace to request a three days journey into the wilderness in order to worship their God. Pharaoh, we read that, and he had already told Moses in chapter 3, Pharaoh would deny that request. But once God stretched out his hand to smite Egypt with all of his wonders, which would be, of course, the ten plagues, then Pharaoh would finally cave in, wouldn't he? He would finally concede to their request and let them go. Of course, he'd change his mind and then chase after them, but that's for later. So Moses knew ahead of time that there would be denials, there would be difficulties, and there would be delays before Israel's eventual physical deliverance. He wasn't to expect a quick and easy road ahead, right? Just like the Lord told us, you know, don't expect a bed of roses once you become a Christian. There's going to be a lot of troubles ahead, persecutions, etc., but he did tell him that success was inevitable. There would be victory in the end because he predicted it. And what God predicts, he has the power to make sure it comes to pass. So there was no doubt in Moses' mind at all about what his assignment was. He knew he was, supposed to, he was God's chosen man. He had known that when he was 40, didn't he? But over the past 40 years, he's kind of come to doubt it. But he knew what the assignment was. The struggle, his beating around the bush that we read about here in this chapter, the struggle he evidenced was in his continued conversation was not about a need for clarification. Now, what exactly do you want me to do? That's not what it was about. It was about um, the matter of reluctance, wasn't it? Hesitation. He really didn't want to do this. Through a series of questions and excuses and then a final plea that we read about in verse 12 to please send somebody else instead of me, Moses was attempting to get out of obedience to his great commission. A lot of people try to get out of obedience to our great commission. And this is why that our title is Moses Beats Around the Bush. He actually gave five responses to God to, to his assignment. Now, two of them I'm going to review, but two of them we actually talked about last time, and they're found in chapter 3. The first was in 3.11, so if you look at verse 11, he had asked, basically, who am I? You know, he heard the assignment, he said, who am I that you would send me to do this? So his first question, who am I? He had, you know, 40 years earlier when he was only 40 years old, now he's 80, but he had presumptuously and he had prematurely attempted to deliver Israel from her bondage. Had he not, problem was he did it in his own flesh. He didn't wait on the Lord. And the result was not only rejection by his Hebrew brethren, but he fled in fear of his life for having murdered an Egyptian taskmaster and been seen, and it was going to be reported to Pharaoh. So he took off running. And so now, 40 years later, he's not quite so self-confident as he was when he was in middle age, <laughs> which I guess wasn't middle age back then. He's still a young man, wasn't he, at 40? Um, so, so he's no longer self-confident. And his question, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, was really a sensible one, you could say, in light of his previous failure. You could understand why he'd ask that. 
Now, think about this. The Lord appeared to him. The Lord gave him the commission in the midst of a flaming bush that wasn't consumed. You know, no ashes, no smoke, nothing being burned up. That, that's pretty incredible, right? And you're speaking to the bush, and the voice of God is coming out of it. And then he says to him also in verse 12 of chapter 3, Certainly, I will be with you. I'm not going to send you on your own this time like you were last time. I wasn't with you when you killed that Egyptian. This time, I'm going to be with you. You would think that that would have refocused Moses' attention from himself. Because see, here he's focused on, who am I? You know, I'm not worthy. You think it, that would have refocused him to not himself, but to the Lord, right? Because the real issue is not about who Moses is. It, the issue is who God is. Moses was just like, you could do a comparison of Moses and what was in his hand, which was a shepherd's staff, right? He was just like the shepherd's staff. He was going to be God's rod to lead God's sheep out of Israel. This is a real shepherd's rod. My husband got it in Crete, Greece, which is kind of neat because my grandmother from Greece was a shepherdess. So this is very special to me. And I'm going to use it to perform miracles today. <laughs> you just wait. <laughs> So that was his first question, who am I? His second question was in verse 13, um, when basically he said, who are you? <laughs> he asked Moses, I mean, God, what is your name? Since his authority to be able to deliver Israel was all bound up in the one who had called him to that task, it was good for him to want to know God's name. To know more about God is always good. Did you know that? That's why you being here this morning to learn more about God, more about his word, that's always good. It's never a negative. It's never bad. <laughs> and to know that his name, I am that I am, reveals more about God than any of his other names. We discussed that last time. That's his amazing name, his self-existent eternal name. It's basically I am, I am is what it really is. I am, I am. <laughs> Unfortunately, though, Moses was not really seeking to know God's name for his own personal further knowledge about God. He was seeking to know it. His motive for wanting to know his name uh, was so that the Israelites would not again reject him as they had the first time. However, I'm glad that he asked, who are you? Aren't you? Because we have benefited, you know, richly, you and I and everybody else who's read the Bible, um, because we have received his answer to that question, even though, I mean, we know God is I am, and we know that that ties in with Jesus, who said I am many times in the New Testament. But he, unfortunately for Moses, he really didn't ask the question in great faith or to personally get to know uh, God better. Well, now chapter 4, you know, chapter divisions, what am I going to do with this thing right now? I'm going to need it later for my miracles, but... I'll just lay it down. <laughs> Chapter 4 is, is not an inspired division because really the conversation with the Lord at the burning bush just continues. And um, the first thing he says in verse 1, if we were to take his statements of verse 1 and turn them into questions, he would be asking God, what if they, 
the elders of Israel, don't believe me? What if they don't listen to my voice? What if they don't believe that you appeared to me and spoke to me? Now, it really would have been better if Moses had asked those questions. If, if he had taken his statements and made them into questions, it would have been slightly better. But he didn't. He made statements. He made declarations, and they began with the word but. And as I said earlier, that is not good. You don't, you don't question God, and you don't say, but God, I don't want to. You know, what if, what if? But he did even worse because he completely contradicted what Lord had, the Lord had said. He said, but behold, they will not believe me. And God had just said, they will believe you. That's a direct contradiction, isn't it, of God's word. Now, in view, again, of the incredible ongoing miracle before him, a, a burning but unconsumed bush, you know, and from the midst of it, the angel of the Lord, the great I am that I am, is speaking to him. There was no reason at all for Moses to say but. He should have said instead, yes, Lord. I am at your ready disposal and I will do your bidding. You know, not my will, because I don't really want to do it. I won't tell you that, but I really don't want to. Nevertheless, thy will be done. Isn't that what he should have said instead of but? Hmm. Moses had crossed a line into disbelief. Actually, his statements here are sinful because they contradicted what the Lord had just told him. He had just assured Moses that the elders would listen to him. So Moses was not only doubting his own worth, you know, who am I to do this, but now he's doubting God's word. That's not good. Did you ever know this about Moses? I know. It really shocked me as I was studying. I always have him pictured as such a great man of faith. He got there, but it took him 80 years. <laughs> so don't give up. <laughs> His but statement was the equivalent of saying, but what if you are wrong, Lord? What if you're wrong and they don't believe me? Now, I know it's always easy from our thousands of years of, of hindsight where we have the great advantage of a completed scripture and we have the advantage of being post-Calvary, it's easy for us to be critical of the mistakes of Old Testament figures, isn't it? The irony of that is that even from our advantage over them, don't we also likewise commit the sin of unbelief? You know, every time you and I worry, hmm, we're challenging God's promise that he will, for those who believe in him, trust in him, those who are his, that he will work all things out together for what? For good, for our good and his glory. That's why I don't like to call it worry. I say, I'm concerned. Doesn't that sound a lot more biblical? <laughs> every time we say, but, every time we say, but, to something that um, is clearly stating in God's word, we do exactly what Moses did. I like this passage, yeah, but that one, isn't that doing what Moses did? Are you sure you didn't make a mistake here, Lord? I certainly thought that about verses 24 to 26. Does this belong in here? <laughs> yep. 
Now, who wrote this book, by the way? Who wrote Exodus? Moses. Now, do you think he could have omitted this chapter about him beating around the bush? Could, couldn't he not have hidden his weaknesses? Yes. Of course, the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him. But he humbly, you know, he became the meekest man on the face of the earth at that time, it says in Numbers. Um, but he, he put this. Of course, he recorded this, so hopefully you and I would learn from his mistakes. And then try this one out. <clears throat> try to put yourself in his sandals. Now, his sandals are on the side because he's taking them off because he's standing on holy ground. But try to put yourself in his place. How would you <laughs> respond to an assignment? <clears throat> You've been given an assignment, and uh, you are to convince the leaders of some two million slaves that you were sent to free them with your staff, your shepherd's staff, and your confidence in this assignment and your success <laughs> came, your eventual success, came from a conversation that you had had with a bush. How many do you think would believe? No wonder he said, I, you know, I don't think they're really going to believe me, Lord. <laughs> that would be a little difficult, right? Well, so the Lord... <clears throat> asked Moses what it was he had in his hand and of course he answered because what was in his hand a rod which is a shepherd's crook or a staff and God was now going to demonstrate to Moses how he can take the most insignificant thing like a thorny bramble bush you know a desert bush he could take a shepherd's rod he could even take an 80-year-old failure turned fugitive and use it or use him for the fulfillment of his purposes, right? Can God take anyone or anything he chooses and use it for his purposes to fulfill? Even He takes even evil, what man meant for evil, and turns it for good. And in doing that, nobody could rightly give the glory to the instrument. Who would give the glory to this shepherd's rod for all the miracles it performed? They didn't give it to the stick, right? Or to Moses. They gave the glory to, the, to God. That way he gets all the glory. And nobody could say with Moses that it was his youthful strength that had freed the slaves. Nobody could say that it was his connections with Pharaoh's court Nobody could say it was his eloquent speech. The Lord would teach Moses that he did not require people who the world considers particularly talented or powerful or handsome or intellectual or even extra, extra spiritual. Moses is not extra spiritual here at all. He chooses and he uses whoever he wants to use. You got that? Man's part just comes in willing surrenderedness, you know, just saying, okay, I don't know why you want to use me, but here I am. Use me. That's all he's looking for. And with that simple shep shepherd's crook, do you know what the Lord did with this thing? amazingly dreadful plagues that fell upon Egypt with this rod. 
course, he didn't have to use the rod, did he? He could have done it anyway. The Red Sea would open for the Hebrews, two million people, to pass over on wet, soggy ground, right? No, dry ground. I mean, part of the miracle is that it split <clears throat> open for them to walk across. The other part of the miracle was dry. <coughs> and then what happened when that last Hebrew crossed to safety on the other side? Came crashing down and drowned Pharaoh's whole Egyptian army. With this rod, Moses would strike a rock and what would come gushing forth out of it? Water. Try that. Anybody want to try it? <laughs> um, so amazing things. God's use of a shepherd's staff also shows us his sense of humor. Let me explain why. It was his deliberate attack on Egyptian culture. Because if there was one occupation they really detested, what was it? Shepherds. shepherds. The shepherds were an abomination. We read that in Genesis to the Egyptians. They just looked down their noses at anybody who dealt with unclean sheep and goats and cows or whatever. <laughs> and so the irony was that God used a symbol of the very thing the Egyptians despised in order to not only humiliate them, but to utterly defeat them. Doesn't God have a great, he does, a wonderful sense of humor. An important truth about the Lord is that he does use that which is in our hand, so to speak. What we have and what we're willing to surrender to him. And the great news is that everybody has something. Everybody. He has given gifts and he has given talents. You know the talent. You remember the parable of the talents? He's given the uh, fruit of the spirit to everyone who is his child. Everybody has something in their hand. Ehud had a dagger. Shamgar, who was the third judge of Israel, had an ox goad. That's a stick that you use to, you know, get oxen to move. Uh, Gideon had what? He had trumpets and pitchers and lamps. Samson had... No, he did have hair. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he had the jawbone of a... Uh, right, of a, of a donkey. My daughter doesn't like me saying that other word. David had a, that was wrong the way I did that. <laughs> he had a slingshot. A widow had two measly little mites. A little lad had five loaves and two fish. Moses, what did he have in his hand out there in the middle of the desert? This was it. He had his shepherd's staff. The Lord will use whatever we have when we willingly use it in his name and offer it to him to do with as he pleases. What have you got? Everybody has something. Don't say I don't have anything. You do. You do. Some people have nimble fingers and they're all over the piano or the guitar or the harp. I got a daughter, granddaughter taking harp. It's so beautiful to listen to. I try to play the violin, not very successfully, but um, what have you got? You've got something. Maybe you're really good with children and you can help in the children's ministry. You know, everybody has something, right? You use it. You just surrender what it is. Even if you don't think it's very much, surrender it to him and he can multiply it.
like you just can't believe, like he did with the, that little boy's lunch. He can take it and multiply it. And then in, in giving it back to him, what are we doing? We're really just giving back what's his anyway, right? He's the one who gave it to us, whatever it is. So in response to Moses' statement that Israel's elders would not believe him, the Lord gave him a very simple command. He was <clears throat> to take that rod and he was to cast it on the ground. Now that's pretty simple to do, right? Just take it and throw it down on the ground, Moses. And Moses obeyed, okay? So he took, I don't want to break it, but he took it and he cast it on the ground. And the minute he did, <gasps> <gasps> make a trip to my grandson's house to get that snake um, it immediately turned into a serpent and Moses had spent many years in the wilderness the hot dry desert he knew a real serpent when he saw one and they were a plenteous out there in the desert and so what did he instinctively do what would you have instinctively done jump back yes he absolutely it says he fled now, then the Lord gave him a second command, and this one was a lot harder to obey than the first one because he was told to stretch forth his hand, and I'm sure it was a venomous snake like that one. I don't know what that is, but it looks venom. It doesn't look good. If they have stripes on them, I don't go near them, um, or I get my ax out. <clears throat> but uh, he was told to stretch out his hand and take the snake by what part? The tail. Now, Unless you are a professional snake handler. How many of those are in here? <laughs> professional snake handlers do take a snake up by its tail. I got this lesson from my husband yesterday who was correcting me because he's seen them do this in other countries. They, they take a stick and they lift the head so they can't get to them, and then they do something with the tail. But normally, you know, you and I, if you're going to go and pick up a snake, I wouldn't recommend it, but um, don't pick it up by the tail because he can then, right, he, he's got a long body, and he can whip around, and he, you just provoked him by picking him up to begin with, and he will rapidly strike at any part of your body that he can reach. So if you're going to pick up a snake, the best, the best place to grab him is where? Behind the head. <laughs> he might wrap around you. You might not want to pick up a python or a cobra or anything like that. But um, anyway. So, but, you know, he, God was testing Moses' courage and faith in his word when he said, pick it up by the tail. And Moses did. He did what he was told, and the minute his hand touched the tail, what was he again holding? He was holding his shepherd's staff. And he was then told that he was to perform this rod to serpent, serpent to rod miracle before Israel's leaders, the elders, so that they would believe his message was indeed from the Lord God of their fathers. You know, the Israelites knew the account of the fall. Even though Moses hadn't written Genesis yet, it was passed down orally. So they knew about Adam and Eve in the garden, etc. And they knew that Satan had taken possession of the body of a serpent in order to deceive Eve with his lies. 
So by this miracle, the Israelites would understand that the Lord was demonstrating his power over Satan and his evil forces, such as Pharaoh and Pharaoh's taskmasters and Pharaoh's magicians and Pharaoh's army. Also, although Moses laid hold of the serpent by its most dangerous part, the tail, in order to validate to Israel his authority as God's chosen deliverer, he was not God's chosen ultimate deliverer, was he? Because that one would come and take that old serpent right by the head and crush it. Amen? Amen. And he has done that. Well, Moses was next told to put his hand into his robe. And I don't have any way to show you a leprosy on my hand here, but that's a good thing. <laughs> so he's told, put your hand in your robe, Moses. And uh, that was e that's, that first command was easy. So he did that, and as soon as he removed, now remove it, and when he removed it, it was full of white leprosy. It was white as snow. Now, white leprosy, leprosy is a very dreaded disease, especially back in ancient times because there was no cure for it at all. And white leprosy is the advanced stage of leprosy. So he pulls out his hand, and there it is in the advanced stage of leprosy. And I am sure, just like that serpent, you know, he wanted to flee from it, but he couldn't because it was him but it must have been very, very shocking. Then he's told to do a second command, but that's one, this one again is even more difficult because he's supposed to take that advanced stage hand of leprosy and touch his chest with it. And that would contaminate other part of his body. But again, we have to give Moses credit here. He did it. He did put his hand back into his robe on his chest and when he removed it, it was completely clean. Then in verse 8, Moses was told that if the Israelites did not believe his word, Moses' word, his voice regarding his God-given commission, nor if they didn't believe, now he knew they would because he'd already predicted they would, but he's just saying this to Moses. If they don't believe your voice, nor do they believe the voice of the first miracle, the voice of the rod to serpent, serpent to rod miracle, they will believe the voice of the latter miracle, which is the voice of the leprosy, the hand leprosy miracle. Get it? That's what he's telling Moses. Now, did you ever think of God's miracles as being voices? That's how God looks at them. He says the voice of the miracles. You know, they really are when you do think about it. The voices of God's miracles, um, they, the, the miracles are presenting a message, aren't they? And the, the message is always to confirm God's word, aren't they? Isn't that what the Lord Jesus did? He did miracles to confirm his message about who he was. He gave Moses these miracles to perform so that the Israelites and Pharaoh would believe that his message, I'm here to deliver Israel. And I got to thinking about that, um, that the miracles 
are the lesser of the two. You know, the message is the most important. The miracles point to the message, don't they? You can't just believe by the miracle. People that see something, you know, they need, faith comes by hearing. You need to hear the message. And that's kind of a picture of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the power of the miracles. God's power forms the miracles. But what was his assignment and still is? He's always to point to the word, right? The Holy Spirit doesn't talk about himself. He always points to Christ, the word of God, the voice of Christ. So that was just an extra something I was thinking about. Well, then the Lord went on to say that if the Israelites neither believed Moses' voice, his words, nor the proof of his words that were given in the two voice signs of the serpent and the leprosy, then he was, once he was in Egypt, he was to take water out of the Nile River and he was to pour it on the dry land. And in the minute it hit the land, what would it turn into? Blood. Um, so the three signs that the Lord gave to Moses there at the burning bush were to serve three purposes. First, they were to help Moses, his own faith, in his assignment. They're to strengthen his faith. And he needed some strengthening, let me assure you. Secondly, they were to authenticate his mission to the people of Israel, especially the elders. Third, they were to show Pharaoh the superiority of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob over, over the false gods of Egypt. Now, as the Jews knew about the fall, the account of the fall in the garden, they also knew that a serpent symbolizes, a, is a picture for what? Satan and also sin. Sin. They also understood that leprosy is a picture of sin. When someone was hit with leprosy, they always wondered what his sin was. <laughs> I mean, they just understood it, meant, and that doesn't necessarily mean the person sinned any more than anyone else. That's where they were misconstrued, but they did understand Throughout the Old Testament, it does indeed picture sin. Leprosy does picture sin. The elders of Israel, before whom this miracle uh, was demonstrated, they would understand that the leprosy miracle was something only their creator could do. Only God could take, there was no human cure. Now, the magicians were able to kind of duplicate the rod to the serpent thing. We'll talk about that when they get, when we get there. How did they do that? You know, and they even kind of tricked with the Nile turning to blood. But that was all sleight of hand and everything. But the leprosy thing, they could not duplicate that, could they? They couldn't because it um, is something only the creator can do. They understood, I think, even if they didn't, they came to understand that the cleansing of leprosy represented the forgiveness of sin. Do you know what the very first miracle recorded in the very first gospel of Matthew is? Now, it wasn't Jesus' first miracle. That was changing water into wine at the wedding in Cana. But the first recorded miracle in the gospel of M Matthew is the cleansing of a leper. And he was showing, I am God, because only God can cleanse a leper. And the Jews knew that. 
Now here's an interesting question that I have. It's one of your homework questions and I want you to think about it. Do you know that the leprosy miracle was never performed before Pharaoh or the Egyptian magicians or the Egyptian people? Now the rod to serpent miracle was and the water to blood miracle was but why do you think they never demonstrated the leprosy miracle to Pharaoh? <laughs> I know you were there yesterday. <laughs> That's one of your homework questions. So you tell me what you think. I'll give you a hint. What I think, I don't know for sure. But I think because it had to do with the forgiveness of sins, the cleansing of a leper had to do with forgiveness. And the Egyptian, Pharaoh never repented, did he? The Egyptians basically were not, they didn't repent and come to the true Lord. They, their sins were not cleansed. I think that's why, but I'm not sure. So there were at least seven specific things presented in this burning bush episode that portray the redemption work of Christ on the cross. We talked about some of these last time. There was a bush, right? A bush, a thorny bush. The bush, and the Lord was in the midst of it, represents the wooden cross, the old wooden cross. The fire that did not consume, we talk about fire in the Bible, represents judgment. Christ was on the cross. He was engulfed in flames of fire, so to speak, symbolically, because God's judgment was upon him, and yet he was not consumed, because he is the prince of life, and three days later he rose from the dead. Who else was there? Well, he was. The eternal one was in its midst. So you have the bush, the cross, the fire, judgment, the eternal holy one himself, thorns, because it was a thorny bush. Thorns speak of the curse and pain of sin. That's why Christ was on the cross. Then we have the serpent in this scene, didn't we? Just, you know, with the miracle. The serpent represents Satan and all his evil forces that surrounded the cross. There was leprosy in this scene, which also represents sin, which was why Jesus was dying. And then there's blood. The water of the Nile was turned to blood and is by the cleansing power of Christ's sinless blood that we are saved. So there you go, seven things at the burning bush that all point to Christ. Now, going back to Moses and his excuses, okay? The fourth thing he said to God in verse 10 is basically, I am not eloquent. He had another excuse to try to use with the Lord. And notice he did not use the name Yahweh, L, capital L-O-R-D, when speaking to the Lord, you know, all capitals. He uses the less personal name of Adonai. That's why it shows capital L and then small O-R-D. So he's giving in another excuse to try to get out of his assignment. And he describes himself as a man slow of speech and of slow tongue. Basically what he's saying here is that he has difficulty articulating thoughts in flowing fluent speech. Um, some people say maybe he stuttered. I don't know. Maybe he thought that he could barely remember the Hebrew language. It had been since he was with his mom and dad that he, you know, that was a long time. He's 80 years old. Maybe he thought, I can barely remember Hebrew. How am I going to speak to the Elders of Israel, um, sheep don't speak Hebrew. <laughs> they don't even speak Egyptian. <laughs> 
or a Midianite, you know? So when you're out with a lot of sheep day after day, year after year, you don't do a lot of talking, do you? Well, probably talk to yourself a lot, but um, he didn't, maybe he thought he couldn't even hardly remember the Egyptian language. Um, and yet, those are nothing but excuses because guess what Stephen, remember Stephen and his wonderful, powerful sermon of Acts chapter seven, you know what he said about Moses? He said he was mighty in words and deeds. Who wrote the first five books of your Bible in Hebrew? Hmm, pretty good Hebrew, too. This is nothing but a pathetic excuse. He had lost confidence in himself, which is okay. That's okay. But what was not okay was that he had also lost confidence in what God could do through him. And that is not okay. Because God, you know, <laughs> I can do all things through Christ that strengtheneth me. And yet, we find that the Lord was long-suffering with Moses, and he responded with questions. This is just like, who is that in the midst of the bush? Jesus. And wasn't that just like him in his public ministry? Somebody would ask him a question, and how did he answer? with another question, and that's what he did. I mean, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he responds to Moses' excuse about how he can't speak well by asking him questions which basically remind him who he is. You know who I am, Moses? I am the creator. Who in the world do you think made your mouth? I did. And I can use the mute, I can use the deaf, I can use the blind. I can use anything I want. I can use that stick you're holding for my glory. That's exactly what Jesus explained to his disciples, wasn't it, about the man born blind? Remember they said, who sinned, him or his parents? Like the little kid sinned in his mother's womb. <laughs> they just had, a, like I talk, said about leprosy, they thought somebody had leprosy is because they had some horrible sin in their life. You know, they had this wrong concept, but God, Jesus explained to them that he was born blind, that the works of God would be made manifest in him. So wasn't Moses really implying that the sovereign creator of the universe had made a mistake when he made Moses? You know, you didn't make my mouth quite right. <laughs> um, or wasn't he saying basically that he had made a mistake in calling the wrong man to be his mouthpiece? This is not good. This is not the way you talk to God. You don't say but, and then you don't give him a bunch of excuses. Even if Moses was a poor speaker, or even if he had temporarily forgotten Hebrew, it didn't matter. Earlier, God had promised to be with him, right? Certainly, I will be with you. And now he adds to that promise something else. He says he will be with his mouth to teach him what to say. You know, you might panic about teaching. You might panic about witnessing to somebody. Just do it. You open your mouth and the Lord will give you the words. I'm up here talking and half the time I'm not even thinking about what's coming out of my mouth. You can tell sometimes, right? <laughs> But just do it, right? Just do it. Trust the Lord. Pray first. Trust the Lord. Say, be with my mouth today. And he'll do it. And he said, who hath made man's mouth? That shuts the door to any complaint or criticism or excuse about being clumsy in speech. 
Right, Squeaky? Yeah. <laughs> Even if you have a squeaky voice, she got up to give a testimony. She said, my voice is squeaky because she was crying, right? Doesn't matter, does it? No, it doesn't matter. Moses' real problem here was not a lack of ability. His problem was a lack of willingness. God was not angry with Moses when he, said, when he asked the question, who am I? Who am I that you would send me? He wasn't angry when he said, and who are you? Or even when Moses, and this amazes me, he should have been angry, but he wasn't angry. He's long-suffering with him. He wasn't even angry when Moses contradicted his own word and said, no, they're not going to believe me. But he did get angry when Moses essentially blamed God, which is what he's doing, for not giving him a good mouth. <laughs> um, I said it wrong yesterday, and I just said it wrong again. He didn't get angry with that. I'm sorry. He gets angry with the next excuse. Now, he should have. Don't you think he should have gotten angry when, when Moses contradicted his own word, and then when he gave that pathetic excuse about his mouth, like, God, you didn't give me a good enough speaking ability. But God didn't get angry. I'm sorry. Erase what I just said. He didn't get angry with those first four questions. But with the fifth statement that Moses made, he did get angry. His next statement, which is in verse 13, showed the bottom line truth of the whole matter, which was not that Moses was unable to fulfill God's commission. It was that he was unwilling. He says, basically, oh, Lord, please, please, pretty please send someone else. His fifth objection sums up all of the previous ones, really. And again, notice he says, Lord, Adonai, instead of Yahweh here. He's begging God to let somebody else do the great commission for him. Hmm. So all of his earlier questions and hesitations and excuses were really uh, a big fat excuse for the fact that he didn't want to obey, did he? He did not want to go back to Egypt. He did not want to deliver the Israelites. Even though God is slow to anger, this, this did it. And it literally says, when it says, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses in verse 14, you know what that is literally in Hebrew? His nostrils flared. You know? I have a son-in-law who can make his nostrils huge. I wish he was here right now. But that's what it says literally. He was hot. Well, yeah, he was on fire. <laughs> but he was, I wonder if the bush flamed up here. Moses was a type of Christ in many ways. That's what our study is about, right? Christology. And he is one of the greatest types of Christ. But in this whole burning bush scene, he is not a good example of Christ at all, is he? He is more of a com uh, contrast to Christ. Well, the Lord's answer to Moses reflected his anger because he did agree to send someone else with Moses to do the job, and that would be his brother. He was going to bring Aaron on board with him, and that turned out to be a mixed blessing. Even though he says Aaron can speak well, and he's going to be glad to see you and glad to be a co-laborer with you, it, 
you know, and I'm sure that delighted Moses when he heard that. Oh, I'm going to see my brother again, and this is great. I won't have to speak. He'll speak for me, et cetera, et cetera. Turned out to be a mixed blessing because Aaron was the one responsible for the golden calf situation. He even, he even um, uh, fashioned that calf and then built the altar himself. And later on, do you remember, he was responsible for instigating a mutiny against Moses. So just like when Abraham brought along Lot, this was God's chastisement on Moses to bring along Aaron. Well, it was not, this is the end of the burning bush experience, and it was not a good ending, is it? That's not a good ending. It should have ended good, because that was an amazing moment. It should have ended with Moses prostrate on his face before the Lord and say, you know, yes, Lord, your will be done. Use me as you see fit. I'm ready to go. But it didn't. It ends with him rather reluctantly taking up his staff, going to his father-in-law, respectfully asking for permission to leave uh, with his wife and his two sons, and um, kind of giving, he's, he's not really honest about what he tells his father-in-law. He's rather evasive. He says he wants to go, he didn't tell him anything as far as we know about the burning bush experience. He just basically says, I, I want to go back to Egypt to see if I have any relatives who are still living. He doesn't even tell him, as far as we know, that Aaron was on his way. He doesn't, well, put yourself again in his shoes. How would you like to go to your father-in-law and say, can I take your wife and my grandchildren and go back to Egypt in order to lead two million Hebrew slaves into the desert for 40 years? And I know I'm supposed to do this because I had a conversation with a bush. So no wonder he was evasive with his father-in-law. But his father-in-law, much unlike Laban, let him go, didn't he? He was a gracious man, and he said, go in peace. So he puts his wife and his children on the donkey, and away they go. And then they stop for a night to you know, spend the night somewhere out in the desert, and the Lord grabs hold of him to kill him. Now that is really strange. Why in the world would the Lord kill the man he had just commissioned to go deliver his people from Egypt? Strange, isn't it? Uh, we know that he was going to die because it says, you know, that he was <laughs> sought to kill him. Um, and, and the only thing that saved him was his wife, Zipporah. She picks up this flint stone knife, you know, she makes a knife out of a flint stone, and she immediately circumcises her son. Which son? I don't know, doesn't tell us. There's a lot of things it doesn't tell us in this passage. And then here, she takes the removed piece of bloody skin that she's just cut off of her son, and she casts it at Moses' feet, which in the Hebrew really is not his feet. It's his private parts. Weird. I went out to dinner with some people last week, and they said, what would you do today, Catherine? I said, I'd been studying this all day. I said, you really don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> And when she does that, she says, surely a bloody husband thou art to me. And with the accomplishment of that circumcision, the Lord spared Moses' life. It says, look at verse 26, so he let him go. He let him go. The Lord had a death grip on Moses. Now, some people say well, maybe he just got deathly ill or maybe he fell off a mountainside or you know, he was going to die. But it says he let him go. So the Lord... This is a, to me, this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ who grabs onto Moses and much like he did with Jacob and wrestled with Jacob all night long, he's got him 
and he doesn't let go of him until Zipporah does her thing. Why would the Lord seek to, to kill the man he had just commissioned after he had been patient with all of his questions and excuses if he was just going to kill him anyway and probably then use Aaron instead? Well, here's the real truth. The opposite is what is really true. The Lord was holding on to Moses in a death grip, like I said, much like Jacob, as a display of mercy, great mercy, for both of those episodes, the wrestling all night of Jacob and this episode with Moses, were used as wake-up calls to his servants, maybe for genuine faith, or at least for full surrender. And we don't know exactly when Jacob was saved. You go back through his life, a lot of people debate, when was he really saved? A lot of people think he was really saved the night he wrestled all night with the Lord and then finally clung to him instead of depending upon himself and said, I'm going to cling to you until you bless me. When was Moses saved? Well, you would think somewhere before. But if you go back and read, you never hear him talk about the Lord. You never hear him praying. You never, I mean, he did the Egyptian thing, killed the Egyptian in his own flesh. Then he goes to Midian, marries a Midianite woman. Maybe this was his defining moment when the Lord got hold of him and he was saved. Because after this, he's a different man. He's the Moses we think of. Circumcision was the covenant sign given by God to Abraham and his descendants. Every male, this was back in Genesis 17, he told Abraham, every Jewish male was to be circumcised at what, how old? eight days old, as a sign of the parents' faith in God's covenant promises. And remember, the Abrahamic covenant promises include the promise of the coming seed of the woman. That's the important part. So you circumcised your son, showing you had faith in the promises of God regarding your people, but also the promise of the Savior to come. That was important. And any child who was not circumcised was to be cut off from his people. That was a very serious warning to the parents. To obey showed faith in God, faith in his promise redeemer. To disobey showed disbelief. So how hypocritical would it have been for Moses to um, be Israel's leader and later to give the law, which included the law about circumcision, if he himself had not obeyed the law and had not circumcised his own son? How could he serve as a type of the Redeemer himself if he had not demonstrated faith in God's promise of the coming Redeemer? Are you getting me? Um, now, we don't know what his heart was at this time, but we do know that his first attempt to deliver Israel had been done totally in the flesh, in his own strength, on his own time schedule. We know that he was a hot-headed young man when he did that. We also know that he was very depressed when his firstborn son, Gershom, was born because he named him a name that means alien, you know, stranger, because he was feeling sorry for himself that he was a stranger in a strange land. Evidently, he felt cut off already from his own people. And he married a Midianite woman, and so he probably figured he was no longer included in the covenant promises, and neither were his sons, so why bother with circumcision? And then he probably found it also very difficult to believe that people who had been enslaved for centuries were going to become a great nation. That was part of the Abrahamic covenant. They're going to become a great nation. They wouldn't even listen to me when I tried to rescue them once. And then they're going to go into a land that's 
filled with six enemies? How are they going to conquer those people? You know, he's just having all these doubts, and he just doesn't believe, so he doesn't bother to circumcise his son. Now, a lot of people, when you read the commentators, will blame Zipporah for all this. They'll say, well, he didn't circumcise his son because... Zipporah didn't want him to. She thought it was barbaric. And you listen to her, and it does sound like she's kind of repugnant, you know, repulsed by this whole thing. Um, but you can't blame her, right? You cannot blame her. If Moses is going to lead a nation, doesn't he have to be the head of his own household first? Yeah, he does. And she's the one who did right here. She wasn't under the covenant of Abraham. She didn't know about that, you know, circumcision thing. Now, they did circumcise, but they didn't circumcise. This is kind of, but they didn't circumcise until a man was going to get married. And then they would circumcise, but not, I think it's better to do it at eight days old. Um, But a lot of people will try to blame Zipporah for this, and I stick up for her. Nothing in scripture, nothing matches the weirdness of this passage and yet as strange as it is and as many unanswered questions as it leaves us with one thing we know for sure and that is that what Zipporah did in circumcising her son released Moses from the Lord's death grip saved his life another clue now we do know that this passage if you try to analyze it a lot of people go way off into outer field when you, they study this passage, and they come up with all kinds of strange things. But what you do when you study a passage is you say, what's the significance of this passage? The significance of this passage is circumcision, okay? Then we get a contextual clue. What just preceded this passage? Well, talk about firstborn. He called, God called Israel his firstborn son for the very first time. Then he talked about um, prophesying prophesying to Pharaoh the death of his firstborn son if he didn't let God's firstborn son Israel go. So it's all about firstborns. And then we have this passage with her circumcising a son. We don't know which son, but I guarantee you it was the firstborn son, which was Gershom. Um, Then uh, we also know that the covenant was like the gospel back in those days to Israel because it was a promise of blessing and salvation every Israelite was called upon to believe and then to demonstrate faith in by circumcising their sons. It was like baptism. You know, baptism doesn't save you. It is you giving public testimony to the fact that you do, do believe in Christ and you identify with him, death and, you know, raising up from death going down into the waters, etc. Circumcision was the same thing. Circumcision didn't save the person, but it was evidence that you did believe in the covenant promises of, of Abraham, given to Abraham, that concerned the promised Savior. Well, somehow, and I don't know how, but Zipporah was an eyewitness to this struggle of her husband. I don't know if she saw the pre-incarnate Christ holding on to her husband. I don't know if she, maybe he was just staggering around because he could see the Lord and he was just like dying and, you know, but she knew. Wives know their husbands, okay? She knew where he had failed and what his issues were, and she did the right thing to save her husband's life, regardless of how barbaric she might have thought it was. But another puzzling question about this passage is why she said, a bloody husband thou art to me. Now, the word in Hebrew for husband is hatan. It also speaks of a bridegroom, you know, a husband or a bridegroom. 
And that's why some people call this the bloody bridegroom passage of the scripture. I got to thinking about Moses' life. We could, we could outline it like this. The basket baby, the buried body, the burning bush, and the bloody bridegroom. You like that? <laughs> this is when I have nothing to do. I think about things like that. But the word chatan for husband or bridegroom um, in Acadi the Akkadian language or the Arabic language, which are both um, very, very similar to Hebrew and um, out of which came the Midianite language. The Midianite language was an Akkadian, a Semitic type of Arabic language. Okay, I know that's confusing. But she didn't speak. Zipporah didn't speak Hebrew, right? She spoke Midianite. And in the Midianite language, Hatan can also mean protected. Now, I can't be dogmatic about this, but Zipporah uh, could have said to Moses as she cast the bloody foreskin on him, <laughs> you are protected by blood instead of you are a husband of blood. Or she could have said, you are a husband of blood, a bloody bridegroom. The rite of circumcision was the foremost symbol of Israel's relationship with Yahweh. So naturally, it involved the shedding of blood, which ultimately pointed to the shedding of the, of the blood of the Son of God, who was cut off for our transgressions. Well, God had become angry with Moses regarding his reluctance toward his public work. His, his commission, and the result of that, you know, when he tried to get somebody else to do it for him, that was his public commission, his public work. The Lord got angry, but the result was that he got his older brother to be his assistant. But when God became angry with Moses regarding his personal walk, it almost cost him his life. Which was Moses' worst sin? Killing the Egyptian, um, asking God to send somebody else, or not circumcising his son? That's one of your homework questions. You just answered it. And how do we know that? How do we know God saw the not circumcising of his son as the worst sin? Because of the punishment. The first, when he killed the Egyptian, the Lord didn't even say anything. But he was banished for 40 years, wasn't he? When he um, said send somebody else, he chastened him by giving him Aaron. But when he had failed to circumcise his own son, showing disbelief in God's covenant promises, he almost lost his life. This was really kind of a rebirth of Moses. You know, ever since he was drawn out of the Nile River, out of the basket, the basket baby, you know, the baby in the basket, by um, the princess of Egypt, ever since then, he had either been living as an Egyptian or as a Midianite. It was time for a reversal of things. He now needed to become a Hebrew again. So really, you could say that Jacob, well, the midwives, Jochebed, and the princess of Egypt saved Moses physically, right? Delivered him physically, but Zipporah, I think, was used to help save him spiritually. 
So I really think Zipporah is, I don't blame her. I, I lift her up. <laughs> okay, make sure that you, okay, they, they go. All right, Aaron and Moses go to Egypt, and they go before the Israelites, and guess what? They are believed, and as it ends on a happy note, yay, <laughs> all the elders of Israel fall down and they worship God. But I want you to make sure you look at your email lesson because it gave you a bunch of comparisons between the Lord's wrestling match with Jacob and this death grip the Lord had on Moses. There are, it's amazing, the similarities between the two. I think those were the, defi you would think, wouldn't you, that the defining moment in Moses' life would have been the burning bush? But it wasn't. What the burning bush did not accomplish, the bloody bridegroom did. That's amazing. That surprised me. Father, thank you for the patience of your people. I'm sorry again that I went over time. But I love you. Thank you for, the, for your word. Every single passage, even the mysterious, strange, weird ones, has so much meaning. And may we understand that always. May we share what we learn with others, Father, and use us until we return again to be your rods in your hand. For we pray in your name.